Why don't you open your Bible to Ezekiel chapter 1. As Gino said, we're going to continue our verse-by-verse studies in the book of Ezekiel. We're in verses 15 through 21 tonight. It's a study that I'm calling Sweet Chariot Swings Low. Yeah. We're, we're, I'm going to have a laugh track. Uh, can, can we do that? Just get like an I Love Lucy laugh track. And, and when I do these titles, especially these, these really sweet titles. But anyway, comic superheroes are noted for having really cool vehicles. There have been several versions of the Batmobile. Mine, the 60s version is still my favorite by far, uh, the George Barris Batmobile. Because uh, I actually saw that. It came to a haunted house across the street from my house once in San Bernardino. So uh, Batman also has at his disposal the Bat bike, the Bat jet, the Bat boat, and the Bat sub, all of which get blown up all the time. But uh, he's, he's got a lot of cool stuff. Captain America, rad motorcycle. Remember Captain America, headed mighty shield, worst movie of all time, but uh, cool superhero. Wonder Woman, this remember Wonder Woman, the invisible jet. She had in the comics, she had an invisible jet. Didn't really translate well on screen, uh, but uh, in the comic book she had an invisible jet, which was sort of partly visible. So I don't know what that was all about. The X-Men use the X-Jet, which is also called Blackbird, but by far the coolest superhero mode of transportation, the Silver Surfer's surfboard. That guy's rad. I mean, just breaking through the clouds on his surfboard. I can't tell if he's good or bad, but he's cool. Way cooler, however, is the chariot of the Lord that swings low over the earth so that Ezekiel can get a close-up here in chapter 1. Now, we met Ezekiel in exile by the banks of the river Kabar. Babylon was the world-ruling power at that time, 6th century before Christ. King Nebuchadnezzar had twice besieged Jerusalem and carried away captives. Ezekiel was taken in the second siege. The opening half of his book occurs before the third and final siege of Jerusalem. Ezekiel's visions and his dramatizations until that point served to both prepare the people for a long exile and to set their sights on the future restoration of Israel to the land God had unconditionally promised them. Uh, and so, uh, he, he, uh, you know, Ezekiel was tasked with telling the people the truth. They wanted to believe that the exile would be short-lived because God had put His glory at the temple. And even though the the Assyrians had come and destroyed the northern kingdom, I think the southern kingdom of Judah thought, well, we have the temple. And, and, you know, we're just as bad as our northern brothers in terms of our sin and our backsliding, but we have the temple. And that's where God's glory dwells. And so we're, we're safe. We kind of, you know... Remember, there was always a place when you played tag that you were safe, you know, if you got back there. And so they were playing tag with the world, doing all these weird things. 
uh, defying God, but, but they could come to the temple. Jeremiah, there's a section in his book, he was prophesying uh, around this same time, but only he was back in Judah. And, and there's a section where he mimics the people by saying, the temple, the temple, the temple of God. Because as he would prophesy about the coming destruction, they would say, I mean, he'd be right outside the temple as they were coming in. And, and, he, and, and you know, they would say, well, he would prophesy and the people would say, well, Jeremiah, the temple, the temple's here. I mean, we're, it's like Ali Ali oxen free, you know, I mean, we're, we're home free. Uh, and so Ezekiel was preparing the people. You know, sometimes you just have to tell people the truth. Uh, and um, we were talking about this a little bit this morning at our men's fellowship. Uh, you know, of course, we do it in a much more jovial way, but uh, I try and be more serious on Wednesday night, believe it or not. And, uh, uh, you know, some, you just have to tell people the truth. And, and, and when they, you know, sometimes things are not going to get better for people. Uh, and and they they need to know that. I, I talk to you sometimes about being a chaplain or a pastor, and and how that you know I'm around people sometimes that say just the craziest things to people who are in tragedy. Uh, you know, some, a loved one has died or some other terrible thing, and well, it'll get better. You'll feel better in the morning. Uh, you know, time heals all wounds and all that. And I'm sitting there thinking this person is never really going to get over this. They're going to have to put it into a perspective. They're going to have to have a, the mind of Christ. You're going to have to have God's perspective on this. We've been talking a lot, or I've been talking a lot about the, the tragedy over in Dinuba that, that some of you know about, some of you read about. There was a police chase. Uh, and uh, very valid. Everything seems like the uh, law enforcement uh, individuals did what they were supposed to do. But the car they were chasing blew a red light. Uh, there was an accident. Uh, all three occupants in the car were killed and five children were killed in the pickup truck that they hit. None of, with, none of them had seat belts. Three of them, I think, were in the bed of the truck, all ejected from the vehicle. That's not just going to be all right. I mean, that, you're talking about years of people trying to put that into perspective. And uh, they need, if they don't know the Lord, they need to come to know the Lord and, and understand what all of that is about in terms of a perspective. But, and so Ezekiel and these prophets, they were giving God's perspective on what was happening. And it's glorious and it's wonderful, but it's real. And so sometimes we just need to be real. Ezekiel sees the heavens open and a storm approaching, but there's something in the storm. There are four cherubim of the type that minister constantly around the throne of God. We looked a lot about at that last week. So now, as the chapter continues, Ezekiel sees further into the storm. He gets more detail uh, of the vision. In verses 15 through 21, those are our, visions, uh, our verses tonight, he sees what appears to be a supernatural chariot. And then he'll see a platform atop the chariot. And then he'll see God seated upon a throne upon the platform. And by God, we'll see that it is none other than Jesus Christ. And so in verse 15, now as I looked at the living creatures, behold, a wheel was on the earth beside each living creature with its four faces. These living creatures are identified by Ezekiel later in his book as cherubim. Uh, They are either a type of angel. There's an argument among scholars as to whether they're a completely separate class of created being or if they're a type of of angel I don't know that it can be determined and I don't know that it absolutely matters they they were created by God uh they're probably angels I think of them as angels and they're unique in that when you see them they have uh something to do with the presence of and the throne of God 
As Ezekiel sees them moving through the heavens, he notices a wheel associated with each of them that is touching the earth. Verse 16, the appearance of the wheels and their workings was like the color of beryl, and all four had the same likeness. The appearance of their workings was, as it were, a wheel in the middle of a wheel. Now, all manner of explanations have been suggested for what Ezekiel really saw. Ufologists argue that he saw the landing of an extraterrestrial craft. One such researcher says, I quote, we encounter mechanical nomenclature. And that's a great word, isn't it? Do you love the word nomenclature? I think it means uh, something like language that is unique to a certain profession. And so, you know, every, that's why I never go to a parts store to buy anything for anything. Because you go in there and you say, I, I need a, uh, uh, you know, I'm trying to remember what we used to call stuff at, you know, in my dad's shop. We used to make up names. I need a dumaflotch you know, and stuff, and, and uh, what? And the guy, and invariably the guy behind the counter knows, you know, what it was called in the 1930s, and, and that's what they still, I never know what anything is called. Even when I know what something's called, I can't recall it, it seems. So I always am made to feel like an idiot, and so that's nomenclature. It's when, you know, it has a unique language. Uh, and so, we encounter mechanical nomenclature such as rings, rims, strakes, spokes, and eyes, which could well be portholes. Ezekiel clearly indicates that these vehicles land, take off, hover, fly in the formation as they zip to and fro in all directions. They're able to do so without needing to bank and turn as do airplanes or birds. As they flash through the sky, they are like the mighty flying machines, vimanas of the Hindu epics, accompanied by a thunderous roar. Finally, as they land on the earth, they let down their wings Curious statement from our UFO-oriented standpoint, unless we realize that these wings could conceivably be metal stairways as seen from the side. Such gangplanks might be lowered smoothly until they touch the ground, giving him the impression that the cherubim had let down their wings. Now, we find this humorous. I hope, and maybe some of you find it serious. But anyway, uh, we find this humorous, but it's something we need to address. A lot of folks who study prophecy believe that some sort of UFO hoax perpetrated by demons will be characteristic of the last days. Uh, and so, uh, you know, we've been taking this on a little bit on Sunday mornings in our prophecy updates because there are just unprecedented numbers of UFO sightings around the world. Uh, the, the numbers are swelling and growing. And, uh, uh, you know, are, are you the kind of person, do you stop and watch the UFO shows or do you just go, nah, <laughs> crazy people? And so some of those things, I mean, there's some fan, fan, fantastic information, uh, credible witnesses, uh, police officers and, and uh, public servants. I think the the uh, governor of, of Arizona reported the Phoenix Lights, which is a, fa a famous phenomenon a few years ago that's still unaccounted for. And so, you know, as Christians, I thought, well, we can, we can deal with this because we believe uh, that these are demons that are just playing around with us, getting the human race ready for an alien invasion kind of explanation for things that are going to be happening in the end times. Uh, and there's one very, very common theory among ufologists and other New Age uh, teachers that uh, 
uh, at some point in time, millions of people are going to be removed from the earth. There's an argument as to whether or not they are bad people or good people uh, and where they actually go, but, but it's the rapture of the church. It's a, it's a satanic deception to you know, cover the rapture of the church. People say, oh, you know, if, if the church was raptured, people would know there's a God. Uh, no, they'd think there were aliens. They think it verified. So, so you know, uh, we take on these alien claims and we, we research this a little bit. The main reason for me that we must reject the notion that Ezekiel was the victim of a UFO sighting is that it offends the Bible's claim of inspiration. Because Ezekiel tells us that these are cherubim and that the vision is of the Lord. He's not a guy living in a van down by the river Kabar who sees a UFO. He's God's prophet who sees the Lord. <laughs> I'm sorry, I couldn't resist. Anyway... So you understand what, I'm, what I mean. If you're not a Christian and you think, wow, you know, uh, ancient guy, 6th century B.C., he sees a flying saucer land and these beings come out. Obviously, there's great power. He starts speculating that it's God or the gods and, and you know, he describes it as best he can. And you find the same kind of descriptions in Hindu literature and on Egyptian hieroglyphics and all that. And so you formulate this idea that it's, a, you know, a, a, an alien uh, visitation. Except that Ezekiel isn't just some guy living down by the river. He's God's prophet. And he says, I'm, you know, I, I'm writing the word of God. The living God, the, the transcendent God who's revealing himself. I'm not a guy struggling to figure out what a UFO is and putting it in my modern, you know, common language and all and stuff. So, so you really can't believe the UFO theory unless you say that the Bible is just not inspired. It's just a collection of writings by people doing the best they can. Uh, but uh, anyway, those of you who follow science fiction and read science fiction novels and such like that, you know that these alien explanations are, are very prevalent. And uh, even a lot of movies and books and TV shows, they, they ultimately say that it was aliens who gave us the Bible or men writing about aliens. And so it's, it's uh, something that we understand as Christians, we're expecting it, and we have an answer for it. Um, and you know, even people who brush this off. Maybe you run into them at work and they say, oh, you know, that's all crazy stuff. They're a little bit worried that there might be something out there that we don't know about. And uh, I'm with Stephen Hawking. You, know, you all know who Stephen Hawking is. He's the brilliant physicist. In, in, uh, he's a quadriplegic, is that correct? And he's this brilliant guy. He says we should not be trying to contact aliens. And, I mean, he's not a Christian. He believes that there might be extraterrestrials. He says we shouldn't be trying to contact them because every superior race has always conquered the inferior race. And so if we contact these people, let them know we're here and conquerable, they're coming. They're going to come. And so even if there were aliens, we wouldn't be interested in them. We should be practicing silence as far as space is concerned. But anyway, so we're on top of all that. Verse 17, when they moved, they went toward any one of four directions. They didn't turn aside when they went. The mechanics of the wheel within a wheel were such that they had free movement in all directions. They didn't turn as on an axle. Now, I admit I have trouble visualizing this. I've seen various artistic representations, but that's all they are, is representations. The important concept here is motion. These wheels allow the chariot unrestricted motion in all directions. Now, why do I keep referring to this as a chariot when it hasn't said that it's a chariot? Well, the Bible itself seems to comment upon God's throne 
as a chariot in connection with the cherubim. For example, when describing the construction of the mercy seat for the Ark of the Covenant in the temple that Solomon built, it's described like this. This is from 1 Chronicles 28:18, and it says, The chariot, that is, the gold cherubim that spread their wings and overshadowed the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. And so Jewish writers uh, believed this representation to be the chariot of the Lord that was accompanied by these cherubim. In Psalm 18, you read, this is verses 6, 9, and 10, In my distress I called upon the Lord, I cried out to my God, He heard my voice from His temple, and my cry came before Him even to His ears. He bowed the heavens also and came down with darkness under His feet. He rode upon a cherub and flew He flew upon the wings of the wind. Then in Psalm 104, verse 3, you read, He lays the beams of His upper chambers in the waters, who makes the clouds His chariot, who walks on the wings of the wind. Now, Psalm 104 may be poetic. It may be a poetic description of God's omnipresence, but the other texts are not. They depict a literal vehicle, as it were, a chariot that's associated with the cherubim, God's sweet ride. Uh, it's just this cool vehicle that God has. Uh, it's got custom rims, verse 18. As for their rims, they were so high they were awesome. And their rims were full of eyes all around the four of them. They're like those spinner rims that, you know, those plastic spinner rims. Oh my gosh. My daughter, uh, what year was that Nissan? Do we remember 87. My daughter had a sweet 87 Nissan, and um, it, Gene kind of inherited it after, uh, you know, when he was a senior because his Corvair was broke down 99% of the time. And so he drove this little kind of transportation car Nissan, and it had the most wasted plastic hubcaps in the world. I mean, you know what I'm saying, just wheel covers, you know, and the chrome was coming off of most of them, and so it was like a two-tone thing. And I'll never forget one of his friends saying, man, those are sweet rims. (laughs) This kid was driving like a Mercedes or something, you know, out at Central Valley Christian. He was serious, though. It was like, wow, those are some sweet rims. And uh, anyway, so God's got sweet rims on his chariot. Now, I don't want to confuse the chariot with modern innovations or in any way suggest that Ezekiel was seeing a future mechanical vehicle. What he saw was God's chariot. But I can't help but think of the new cars that come equipped with various sensors. Mercedes pioneered radar-guided pre-crash technology that senses when a car might crash and takes preventive measures. And there's all kinds of, you know, cars that can parallel park by themselves with sensors and all that. And, and so when you see these eyes in the rims, you know, the idea is that God's chariot sees everything in every direction. It speaks to us of discernment. Now, you've probably heard, probably memorized this famous verse. It's Second Chronicles 16 verse 9 you'll you'll know it immediately for the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him do you know that there's more to that verse it ends by saying in this you have done foolishly therefore from now on you shall have war it was a prophet's warning to King Asa who put his trust in armies 
Instead, Asa ought to have known the Lord's chariot was about looking to give victory as God forwarded his plan for his people. And so God's chariot was about Israel as it always was. And he was looking upon them, wanting to touch down and help them. But Asa decided he was going to go and get uh, the armies of the world to ally with him against the Assyrians. And it just didn't work out. Now, the whole vision is intended to communicate that the earth and its history is moving according to God's eternal plan. His throne touches the earth. His wheel set the earth, its history in motion. Kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall according to God's plan for his people on the earth. Verse 19, when the living creatures went, uh, the wheels went beside them. And when the living creatures were lifted up from the earth, the wheels were lifted up. Sounds like a series of touch-and-goes, as if an airplane or a jet were doing touch-and-goes. Only this wasn't for training purposes. This was the real thing. I I wanted to stop and think about that, and so I did. And I thought, why these touch-and-goes? Why is the chariot touching down and and lifting back up again? Well, we'll see one reason why in chapter 9. I'm going to give you a preview. I just want to read six verses from Ezekiel chapter 9. So follow along, please. You can turn there if you want. I'm not sure. We, are they going to be up there? They'll be up there if you want to follow along. Then he called out in my hearing with a loud voice saying, Let those who have a charge over the city draw near, each with a deadly weapon in his hand. And suddenly six men came from the direction of the upper gate, which faces north, each with his battle axe in his hand. One man among them was clothed with linen and had a writer's inkhorn at his side. They went in and stood beside the bronze altar. Now the glory of the God of Israel had gone up from the cherub where it had been to the threshold of the temple. And he called to the man clothed with linen who had the writer's inkhorn at his side. And the Lord said to him, go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and cry over all the abominations that are done within it. To the others, he said in my hearing, go after him through the city and kill. Do not let your eyes spare nor have any pity. Utterly slay old and young men, maidens and little children and women, but do not come near anyone on whom is the mark and begin at my sanctuary. So they began with the elders who were before the temple. God was looking for those whose hearts were aligned with his. In a sense, his chariot was touching down and and identifying those whose hearts were loyal to him. Uh, He always is looking for people whose hearts are aligned with his. Perhaps the cherubim were touching down to mark these faithful saints prior to the final siege against Jerusalem. And so verse 20, wherever the Spirit wanted to go, they went, because there the Spirit went, and the wheels were lifted together with them, for the Spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. Okay, so the spirit of these cherubim were in the wheels. They had some sort of a connection with the wheels, what we might call an interface that rendered the wheels at their complete immediate control. They themselves were following the leading of God's spirit. They did not act independently. These are fantastic creatures with a fantastic vehicle. Angels must get mind blown by God's unfolding plan for human history. One angel is on record as slaying 185,000 Assyrians in a single night. 
Their exploits are amazing when you read of them on the pages of Scripture. Yet God is working in and through human beings. His strength is on display in our weakness. I can't help but think that angels just think, Hey, Lord, just let, let me do it. You know, Gene's going to do a crummy job. He's, he's going to miss a lot of nuances in the text. And so just let me do it, you know. Let me, let me at that guy. Uh, let me take care of this situation. You know, we do everything you say. We do it perfectly. We only follow the Spirit of God. You know, those human beings, they're, they're supposed to be led by the Spirit, but they're still fighting against the flesh. And it's just got to be a mind-blowing thing for angels. And yet God, revealing His character, revealing His glory, revealing His love as He works in and through us. Verse 21. When those went, these went. When those stood, these stood. And when those were lifted up from the earth, the wheels were lifted up together with them, for the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. Babylon was a monster. In no time at all, Nebuchadnezzar would again besiege Jerusalem. During that final siege, which lasted about 18 months, every worst woe befell the devoted city, which drank the cup of God's fury to the dregs, according to 2 Kings chapter 25, Lamentations chapter 4. The city was plundered and reduced to ruins. King Zedekiah and his followers attempted to escape, making their way out of the city, but they were captured on the plains of Jericho and they were taken to a place called Riblah. There, after seeing his sons put to death, his eyes were put out and being loaded with chains, he was carried captive into Babylon where he remained a prisoner to the day of his death. You know, this third siege that was coming, Nebuchadnezzar wasn't messing around anymore. He'd come twice. He'd been relatively nice for a despot in those days. Uh, it was, they were better off under Nebuchadnezzar than they were with the Assyrians, who were just the cruelest people you can imagine. Uh, and, and yet, they continued to rebel against the advice of Jeremiah and the other prophets. And so when Nebuchadnezzar came the third time, he just raised Jerusalem. He, 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 and he, he took Zedekiah. He said, the last thing you're going to see is your children killed and then I'm taking your eyes and then you're just going to die in captivity. After the fall of Jerusalem, the Babylonian general Nebuzaradan, Nebuzaradan uh, something like that, a uh, guy with Nebu in front of his name, was sent to carry out its complete destruction. The city was razed to the ground. Only a small number of vine dressers and husbandmen were permitted to remain in the land. Gedaliah, with a Babylonian guard stationed at Mizpah, was left to rule over what was left of Judah. Habakkuk was a prophet contemporary with Ezekiel, but a little bit prior to him. He complained that the Lord wasn't doing anything about his people living in sin. Hezekiah or Habakkuk knew this concept that the Lord's was going through the earth looking for those whose heart were fully committed to him. And Habakkuk was honest. He was an honest prophet. He looked around and he says, Hey, your people are carnal, Lord. They're sinners. They're, they're not following you. They're offering lame sacrifices. They're, they're just, you know, rubbing your nose in it. And, and what are you going to do about it? Why don't you act? And so God told Habakkuk, I am definitely going to do something, but I don't want to tell you because you're not going to believe it when I tell you. And Habakkuk says, hey, I'm your prophet. You can trust me. Tell me what it is you're going to do. And he was probably pretty excited 
you know, because now, you know, finally the answer to his prayers, God's going to move, he's going to act, he's going to turn things around. He says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to bring the Babylonians down. I'm going to let the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, overrun Jerusalem. I'm going to let them discipline you. Habakkuk said, yeah, that's not what I had in mind. I, I don't, I, really? And then there's some talk about how awful that's going to be uh, and, and, you know, what was going to take place. Uh, and, and, and yet Habakkuk, by the end of the book, some of the greatest verses in all the Bible, of course, he says, though everything is going to fail and fall, yet will I praise him. Uh, he has given me hind's feet, and I will walk upon my high places. A beautiful image there, car- captured in a great little book, if you haven't read it, a little devotional book by Hannah Hernard called Hind's Feet on High Places. It's probably still in print, or you can get it. And uh, it just describes that as a kind of an allegory. It's a great little book. But uh, the picture there of the, the hind in danger rushing off into the rocks, you know, the dangerous rocks, but it's fitted for that environment. And, and it, can, it, can, it can go there. And sometimes Christians, we need to be chased really up the mountain, as it were. Uh, you know, we, you know that we need to make that spiritual ascent, but if we're not chased up there by some trouble, some difficulty, some problem, we're just never going to go. Uh, another great book, Victorious Christian Living by Alan Redpath, which describes the Christian life in, in, as a series of ascents higher up the mountain. So lots of good reading for you to do. And so Habakkuk. Uh, but the reason I'm telling you the story of Habakkuk all of that uh, was set in motion by God. He remained firmly in command. He told Habakkuk, he says, here's what's going to happen in human history. The Babylonians are going to conquer the Assyrians, and then they're going to conquer you. And then later, Daniel, who was also taken captive uh, by the Babylonians, God, you know, comes to him in chapter 9, he says, here's what's going to happen after that. The Medes and Persians are going to conquer Babylon, and then the Greeks are going to conquer them, and then the Romans are going to conquer them. And then he looks way into the end times and talks about the revived Roman Empire. And this is what this vision is really about. Not so much that detail, but the idea that God, the wheels of heaven, are setting in motion the history of this world in which we live in. That God is firmly in command. Whatever superior weapons and tactics Nebuchadnezzar might have over the nations of the earth, God's chariot was superior. But as a weapon, it doesn't simply annihilate enemies... No, it can use enemies to its advantage. God surveys the situation and he says, listen, I'm going to give you guys space to repent. And if you don't, then I'm going to have to use the Assyrians. I'm going to have to use the Babylonians. I'll use the Medes and the Persians. I will use the nations of the world. I'll rise up kings and set down kings in order to accomplish my glorious purposes. For us tonight is uh, the recollection that God is always looking for hearts that are loyal to Him. And so, a couple of questions. Has He touched down near you lately? Has God touched down near you? And if He has, are your, is your life bearing His marking? Uh, are you looking more like Jesus Christ because of uh, spending time with the Lord? Amen? Amen. Ezekiel is just mind-blowing stuff as far as I'm concerned.